0: Thank you so much, Rebecca Parker Choir, Dan, for beautiful music today. Let's begin with a special time of prayer. Father, we are a broken people dwelling in a broken world. You have called for your people to be different, to not return evil for evil but rather to meet evil with good. In the midst of the mess of our world today, may the church be the one to demonstrate love, grace, and peace for all people, without regard of culture or color. But to know together we worship a common Christ, crucified and resurrected, that there no longer, as Paul tells us, be walls of division. In the name of Jesus, we pray for our community, our nation, and our world. Amen. Amen. when the service is average, I'm told. 20% when it's really good. 25% might be exceptional, but never 18,333% would you? 18,333% tip? Well, one time it happened. John Bach, a chief investment officer, left an $11,000 tip on a $60 tab. An $11,000 tip on a $60 tab. No way Colleen Gallagher, a Chicago waitress, gave service that good. How many refills would you have to pour to earn an $11,000 tip? She didn't earn it, but he wanted to give it. Bowled over by Bach, Colleen told the Boston Herald that she's going to use the money to take care of her children, six-year-old Daniel and two-year-old Dylan. Sometimes we are paid more than we earn. Sometimes we get grace. In today's sermon, David is a big tipper. A man of grace, not a man of greed. First thing I want you to see this morning, turn to First Samuel 22. We'll be working our way up to chapter 30. But the first thing I want you to see this morning is God gives gifts. He doesn't pay wages. God gives gifts. He doesn't pay wages. When we left David last time, He was in the wilderness running from Saul, gathering for himself together a band of the most unsavory characters. Look at 1 Samuel 22 and and look at at verse 2. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Now there were about 400 men with him. David on the run from Saul, gathering those who are pushed to the edges of society. We'll get to our, our text today. In chapter 30, David has grown from 400 men to 600 men. Here David is, probably in his 20s, running around in the wilderness, a real outlaw from the king with a price on his head. What has David done to deserve this? He's been loyal to King Saul. He has even put down Goliath, the giant. He is the son-in-law to the king. He is best friends with the king's son, Jonathan. But the women sang, didn't they? And Saul could never forget it, could he? Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so the editor, 1 Samuel, told us from that day forward, Saul looked upon David with a jaundiced or jealous eye. The Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. David David's indwelt by the Spirit of God, and his every move, his every motion was led by Yahweh. David's in the wilderness. But David knows wilderness time. He had been the wilderness of Ziph, the wilderness of Maon, the wilderness of Paran, the wilderness, that arid, unpeopled place, harsh, cruel, where David finds himself once again in refuge. Now I'll turn over to chapter twenty-seven, verse one. David made an allegiance, an alliance with someone that would normally be David's enemy. Look at twenty-seven, one. Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape into the land. Of the Philistines, skip down. So David arose and crossed over. He had six hundred men who were with him. The Philistines were the perennial enemy of the people of God. David had actually been at war against them, as you know, and now he has no choice. Saul is after him. He's rejected. He moves over to the Philistines, to Achish the son of Maok, the king of Gath. David and his men. Now his men were not exactly Navy SEALs. They were not the cream of the crop. They were the dregs of the barrel. The misfits, it appears. The rejects, the losers, the dropouts. They joined together Philistines. He really had no other choice, die in the wilderness or go to Philistia. And so he did. They're trying to form around David, the one anointed by the Spirit of God, a new community of God, a remnant of the past, and a seed for the future of the people of God. Now, those in David's army were not set apart by their glorious past, not at all. They wanted to forget their past. They were ashamed of their past rather they were set apart by what God was doing with them and through them and the act of forgiveness and restoration. Put it bluntly, David had a bunch of misfits and outcasts gathering around him, making up his army. Kind of reminds you of church, doesn't it? I want to read to your 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Don't turn to it for time's sake. This is a unique translation from Eugene Peterson, but listen to how he translates 1 Corinthians 1, 26. Take a good look, my friends, to the church at Corinth, or we might say Amarillo. Take a good look at who you were when you were called into this life. I don't see a whole lot of the brightest and best among you not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose many women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses, chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies? That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn before God. Everything that we have right down to... Right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start, it comes by way of God through Christ Jesus. That's why we have the saying if you're going to blow a horn, blow the trumpet for God. David gathered with the misfits which Paul likens the church into. David wants his own town. So the Philistines give him, 27.6, Ziklag as his home base. 1 Samuel 27.6. So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah until this day. David is supposed to have turned traitor against the people of God. He's supposed to spend every day out looting against the Israelites. What he does, he goes out during the day and goes to the south and loots from the tribes that have long been enemies of Israel. He brings back the plunder and claims that he's stolen it from the Israelites. See, I'm a good Philistine, he says. David's off on one particular military mission. Now turn over to chapter 30. For King Achish of Gath, he left behind Zikli, the wives, and the children. Totally unprotected bad, bad move on David's part. Even the best military strategists make deadly decisions every now and then. The problem was he made the bad decision now rather than then. Leaving the women and children unprotected with warriors at Ziklag, the Amalekites came, and they overthrew the city, and they burned it with fire. And they captured all the women and all the children. They didn't kill anyone, but they carried them all off. And so when David's men returned from a military campaign, they see nothing but ashes and rubble and smoke in an empty town. The Amalekites came while David left the city, his wives, the children unprotected, and they made off with everything and burned everything that they left. Have you ever noticed that catastrophe brings out either the worst or the best in all of us? It brought out the worst in David's men. They are ready to stone David. He'd made a bad decision. Their wives and their children were gone. They were ready to stone him. They were ready to take his life. Look at verse 6 of chapter 30. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David's about to be cast down and stoned to death by his misfit, his vagabond military. David calls for his pastor. He calls for Abiathar and he says, bring me the word of God. Should I chase the Amalekites? Should I try to regain all this lost, or do I have to let it go? Abiathar says, you go. God will give you back that which belongs to you. Look at verse eight. Shall I pursue this band? Shall I overtake them? And he said, pursue, you will surely overtake them. And you will surely rescue all the women and children. So they set out on foot, chasing the Amalekites when they come to the brook Besor. Now remember, they've already been on a long military campaign and they're tired and they're weary and it seems like a wild goose chase. They haven't seen any Amalekites, neither here nor there, and some of the guys just can't go any further. They're fatigued. They're done in. They cannot put another foot forward. So of the 600 now... 200 stay back at the brook with the baggage and the other 400 men decide to continue in battle. That's when they found him, an Egyptian. He hadn't had anything to eat or drink for days. Even though he was part of the party that had done David in, For some reason, David and his men had compassion on this Egyptian who was dying in the desert. They gave him something to eat, raisins and fig cakes, and moistened his desert dry lips. And David asked him, to whom do you belong? Where are you? He said, I'm a man from Egypt, a servant of the Amalekite. My master left me behind. I fell sick three days ago. When everything was going well, his master had use for the Egyptian, but now that he was a burden, he was sick, he was slowing them down. They just deserted him in the desert to die. David says, would you tell us where the Amalekites have gone? Now, I imagine this Egyptian has a few axes to grind against the folks who left him in the desert to die, and he says, you bet I will if you won't hand me back over to my master. They had left him in the valley as vulture meats. Yeah, I'll tell on them. What do you need to know? David gives grace to the Egyptians. He had received God's grace, and even as he received grace, now he gave grace. Isn't that the way it ought to be? That as the people of God, we become a conduit for the grace of God? And as God loves us in our undeserved fashion, we ought to also to love others with a godly love. We give a piece of what we ourselves have experienced in God. The Egyptian led them to the exact location, the Amalekites, and now they are having a desert dance. They have all these things they've taken from Ziklag. They are dancing. They are drinking. They are whooping it up in the desert. They've let their guard down and so, look at verse 17. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who rode on camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives, but nothing of theirs was missing. Whether small or great, sons or daughters, small or anything that they had taken for themselves, David brought it all back. Now the same people who a moment ago were ready to stone David, are now singing a new song. This is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. This is David's spoil. Now, you know David did just take what they'd taken from him. He took his stuff and their stuff and was coming back with double amount of goods and beasts. burden. It seemed like an absolute victory until they came back to the brook Besor. Now, who's back at the brook Besor? The 200 men who were too weary to do war, they were standing waiting with the baggage. How delighted they were when they saw their wives and children returning back to them. And, that, and that's when it's happened. The story comes in verse 22. Look at it. Then all the wicked and worthless men among those who went with David answered and said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we recovered, except to every man his wife and his children, they may lead them away and depart. I don't know which one of them said it first, but one of David's wicked men, one of those types, you know, he was probably a CPA, an accountant, you know the kind of guys. Now, fellows, you can have your wives and your children back when it comes to the spoils of war. Since you didn't go to battle, you don't get any booty. It's it. You get nothing. But David brought to their attention, guys, all this is a gift from God. God led us to the Egyptian who led us to the Amalekites. God caused us to be victorious in war. We're not really counting here. Look at verse 23. For as his share who goes down to battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share a lie. Now there's the apex of the story. Not winning battle, but rather the dividing of the spoils, David decided that the undramatic guys who stayed back with the baggage would walk away with just as much booty as the guys who went to battle. David is saying everything that we have is a gift from God. There're always those even though they've received grace somehow fail to dispense grace. Is God always just and fair? No. He's not. Sometimes God goes beyond fairness to grace and mercy. How is it, we ask ourselves, that the men at the brook Besor get paid a vacation while the others are risking their lives, producing the fruit of the fray? That reminds us of Matthew 20 that Joel read to us earlier, doesn't it? A man goes out to hire some laborers to work in the vineyard. He goes by the workforce and he hires some guys at six o'clock, he comes back at nine o'clock and more guys jump on the truck to put it in contemporary language. He comes back at lunchtime at 12, he goes at three and he returns at five and quitting time is six o'clock. And when it comes time to settle accounts, he starts with the guys who didn't go to work until five o'clock and he pays them a day's wage. And the guys who started at three, a day's wage. The guys who started at lunchtime, a day's wage. And finally, the guys who've been out in the heat of the sun all day long say, Now, wait a minute. When we saw the guys who worked an hour get a day's wage, we thought we were really going to be rewarded. And the master said, Didn't you agree to a day's wage for a day's labor? Well, yeah, 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 I did. Didn't I pay you? What I owe you, well, yeah, yeah, technically, technically you did. What business is it of yours if I'm gracious with what is mine? If you look behind the story, it might go something like this. These guys got wives and children too. Their children are just as hungry as yours are. They were on the curb at 6 o'clock. They just didn't get hired. They came along, and they've waited all day, and they've got mouths to feed, too. So if I want to be generous to these men and their families, what is it to you? Jesus is giving us, like David, a story of grace. Grace cannot be calculated like a day's wage. Grace is not about finishing first or last. It's about not counting. We risk missing the story's point that God dispenses gifts, not wages. Anybody in this room, anybody watching by way of television want God to pay you what God really owes you? If so... You end up in hell. God doesn't pay wages. God gives gifts. If the world could be saved by bookkeeping, then we would have been saved by Moses and wouldn't have needed the second Moses, Jesus. Grace cannot be reduced down to generally accepted accounting principles. In the bottom-line realm of ungrace, some workers deserve more than others, and the realm of grace, the word deserve, does not even exist. You see? Grace means there's nothing that you could do to make God love you more. He already loves you as much as he, he possibly, possibly can. You remember that thief on the cross? The man who lived a wretched life believes in Jesus at the last moment, identifies him correctly, knows he's done nothing to deserve death. And Jesus says to the one who's lived a terrible life at the moment of death because he believes, today you will be with me in paradise. And I want to say, now, wait a minute. That's not fair to Peter and John and James who gave up so much. This guy lives a terrible life. At the last minute, he believes, and he gets in paradise right alongside Peter and James and John. Hasn't man always wanted to question God's judgment? Grace is found with David at the brook Besor. Grace is found in the master's overpayment of the workers. Grace is found in the father's joyous uh, attitude, throwing a party when the prodigal son returns home. Grace is found when Jesus forgives a woman caught in adultery. And grace is found when he heals on the Sabbath rather than keeping the law. And it is found in his acceptance of the unacceptable. And thank goodness is found in his story with me, and with you. Very quickly, there's a second thing I want you to see. When God is being gracious, we're being jealous. When God is being gracious, we're being jealous. Guys, you can have your wives and children back, but you're not getting anything because you didn't wage war. How can you pay that guy the same thing you're paying me? I've worked all day, he worked one hour. When God is being gracious, we're being jealous. Charles L. Allen in The Miracle of Love says he has a fisherman friend who told him you never need a top on a, a crab basket because if one of the crabs is making his way out of the basket, the other crabs will always reach up and pull him by the leg and yank him back down. <laughs> don't need a top. Crabs, I don't know if it's jealousy or what it is, but crabs will never let another crab escape or have anything better than they have. No worries. We act like crabs when God is a God of grace. They didn't help win the battle. They don't get the booty. The one who went to battle, the one who stayed with the baggage, will all be the same. David steps in. He steps in like Jesus, a man of mercy in grace. How would it change your life? How would it change my life if I became not only a recipient of God's grace, but a giver of God's grace? I really probably could have been an accountant. I like things straight and square and balanced, too. I like to keep up with it all. How would it lift our burdens if we left all of that to God and just simply received His grace and gave His grace, unearned, unmerited, based on gifts and our relationships, and not on wages? Let us pray. Oh, God, never give us what we deserve. Always give us your grace. Oh, God, may we always experience a heart of joy when we see others come into your kingdom, even at the last minute. Oh, God, free us from the pettiness of measuring and comparing. Take from our souls the jealousy and covetousness. Ripped from our lips the cries "Unfair, unfair." when we're not pleased with the way others are treated in comparison with what we received. May your people have souls that are content with exactly how you deal with us. For every one of us in this room. For listening by way of television is nothing but a recipient of your grace and your mercy. Amen.